Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the LSE for this online event on Great Powers, Climate Change and Global Environmental Responsibilities. This event is co-hosted by the Department of International Relations and the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment here at the LSE. My name is Robert Faulkner. I'm an Associate Professor of International Relations and the Research Director of the Grantham Institute. We have convened this panel today to launch a new book on the role of great powers in climate change, which the panelists have all contributed to. The book was published in January by Oxford University Press and you can find more information about it on the events page. Before I introduce the main themes of the book and our distinguished speakers, I wanted to briefly acknowledge the international context in which this event is taking place. Precisely a week ago on 24th February, Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, a sovereign nation and a member of the United Nations. Putin's regime is currently ramping up the military attack which is causing a growing number of casualties among Ukraine's civilian population. We're witnessing an act of aggression in breach of international law, and it is becoming clear that war crimes are unfolding in front of our eyes. These are deeply troubling times. Given this context, the panelists debated how to approach tonight's event. We felt that we needed to go ahead with the panel discussion, after all, climate change remains a worrying, if rather more long-term, threat to human and international security. However, in light of the human tragedy that is playing out in Ukraine, we agreed it would be inappropriate to include a short talk on Russia's climate policy as we had planned. We may, of course, end up touching on this topic in the discussion later on. I hope you will understand. Let me now briefly outline the main themes and questions that the contributors to this book address. This edited volume is the first comprehensive study of how great powers approach international climate politics. We are particularly interested in understanding how international power inequality affects the search for international climate solutions. As in other international policy areas, some states matter more than others in climate politics because of their superior environmental power or significance to international cooperation. But it is not immediately clear what counts as a great power when it comes to climate change and what it means to be a great climate power. Clearly, some countries have a much bigger impact on the global climate because of the size of their economy and their emissions, or because they control important ecosystems such as forests that can absorb carbon dioxide. Other countries are powerful because they can help advance international cooperation or finance climate mitigation efforts, or because they are recognized as a responsible great power. So there's a material, but also a social dimension to great power status. We develop this conceptual framework more deeply in the book, and Barry Buzan uh, will say more about this in his opening remarks. In the book, we also distinguish between positive and negative uses of environmental power. Positive, because climate powers can use their power to promote international change and sustainability, and negative, because climate powers can block progress in international negotiations, refuse to participate in climate action, or undermine international cooperation efforts. And this leads to the question, 
of what, if any, special responsibilities great powers ought to take on, whether they have accepted or rejected, as it may be, such responsibilities. Given that great power politics is on the rise in climate politics, we should develop a better understanding of both the status and the responsibilities that come with great power in this field, and whether there is any chance of moving towards a more legitimate form of power asymmetry of great power management. But I'll stop here because these are the topics that will be explored in more depth in the opening statements and then in the discussion that is to follow. Before I introduce the speakers, let me briefly explain the format for this event. Each panelist will initially speak for about eight minutes. They will set the scene and introduce some of the main themes of their contribution to the book. And after that, I will then open the discussion with the audience. If you would like to put a question to our panel, then please submit the question using the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Feel free to do so at any time right from the start of the event. I will try to read out as many questions as possible, so please do keep them brief, but also include your name and affiliation. We're particularly keen to hear from our LSE students and alumni. Please do let us know who you are. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is LSE post-COVID. This online event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. Let me now introduce the speakers in alphabetical order. First up, Alina Avechenkova, who is a distinguished policy fellow at the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment here at LSE. In her early career, Alina worked at the UNFCCC Secretariat, and she also uh, did climate-related consultancy work. Now at Grantham, she leads on the Institute's international policy engagement work and she's currently a senior research fellow at the Elkana Royal Institute in Madrid. Our second speaker is Barry Buzan. Barry is an Emeritus Professor of International Relations at LSE, where he held the Montague Burton Chair, and he's currently a senior fellow at LSE Ideas, our foreign policy think tank. Barry is also a fellow of the British Academy and holds a number of honorary university positions, including in China. He's the co-editor of the book we are launching today. Next up is Catherine Hochstetler, who's a professor of international development and the head of the Department of International Development at LSE. Cathy has published widely on global environmental politics and Latin American politics. Her latest book, which came out with Cambridge University Press uh, just over two years ago, uh, is on political economies of energy transition, wind and solar power in Brazil and South Africa. Miriam Priest Hansen, is lead research fellow and head of research program four on global orders and foreign policies at the German Institute for Global and Area Studies in Hamburg. Miriam holds a PhD from Oxford University and her research focuses on emerging powers, global governance and climate change with a particular focus on India. And last but not least, Stacey Vanderveer is professor of global governance and human security and the chair of the Department of Conflict Resolution, Human, Human Security and Global Governance in the John McCormick Graduate School of Policy and Global Studies at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. Stacy has published widely on global environmental politics, including most recently the fifth edition of the widely read volume, The Global Environment, Institutions, Law and Policy. Thank you all for being here tonight. 
I now give the floor to Barry Buzan, who will kick off with his opening statement. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. Um, well, I'm supposed to present here the conceptual framework, and uh, Robert has already done some of my work for me. Thank you, Robert. Um, we are approaching the subject of global environmental responsibility through the idea of great powers. This is a very conventional international relations way of approaching things. And as Robert mentioned, there are different ways of using the idea of great powers to approach the subject. Um, great powers can be thought of in terms of their material powers, their, uh, their actual capabilities. This is the, the realist approach in general. Um, the argument is, since great powers command most of the wealth and power in the system, um, if you can understand what they're doing, then you've understood most of what it is you need to know. Unfortunately, this comes along uh, with the other realist assumption, um, all too evident, as Robert's uh, opening remarks uh, suggested today, uh, that this is a system of, of, uh, of rivalry and conflict amongst great powers. Um, we see that today with uh, Putin's Russia, and we saw it with uh, Trump's US. But there are other ways of understanding great powers, more in terms of their social power, um, their responsibilities for managing international society. So this is the kind of English school way of, uh, of looking at things, great power responsibility, um, the way in which great powers in a sense have a legitimate position um, in international society and therefore are sovereign equality notwithstanding allowed in a sense to do a certain number of specialized managerial roles on behalf of international society. Liberalism has a somewhat different take on this, mainly working through the idea of, of hegemony um, and the idea that, that, uh, that great powers have hegemonic responsibilities some uh, in their own interest, simply because they own uh, most of the system and some on, on behalf of the system. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, social aspect here of the recognition of great powers. Uh, do, do countries recognize themselves as great powers? Do others recognize them as great powers? So there's a general package of things around great powers here, all of which is fairly well understood and fairly conventional as an approach to IR. Uh, there are some difficulties with this approach. I'm not going to go into them in a lot of detail here because we could spend hours at this and it's, it's not all that interesting, but um, there's a problem with power. Right? Uh, what is power? <laughs> there are endless debates about that. Um, endless futile attempts to measure it. You know, how do nuclear weapons, uh, Russia's nuclear weapons stack up against Japan's GDP? How do you, how do you reconcile those as factors of, uh, of power? And those questions are not really answerable, uh, which leads to the question, well, who are the great powers? How do we know? Um, and again, this is a question that hasn't been successfully answered neither English school luminaries uh, like Martin White or realist luminaries like Ken Waltz have managed to do any better than you'll know a great power when you see one. Uh, <laughs> and this is not terribly convincing. Um, and there's always some argument because we actually don't know a great power when we see one, or at least different people see different things. Surprise, surprise. So there's a, a certain difficulty, you know, even with this really rather basic and foundational idea of 
of pinning down all of the particular characteristics that, that you need. Um, uh, it's possible to operate with the idea of superpowers, great powers, and regional powers, or there are various other ways of parsing uh, this particular spectrum. But then are superpowers great powers, or are great powers something different from superpowers? Um, all of these things are uh, difficulties, the vocabulary around great powers, especially in, um, in the public debates, is incredibly loose. Um, so you get absurd statements like regional great powers and such like. Now, we're rather kind of bluffing our way through um, all, of, all of these difficulties, partly because uh, Robert uh, has, has suggested we've looked at the nature of power in an environmental sense. So it's fairly straightforward to say that most of the powers that are discussed as great powers are also environmental great powers because they're big and have uh, both uh, a lot of negative and positive power in relation to this. And then there's an array of other countries that for particular reasons and depending on particular um, issues that you might be looking at, whether whaling or forests or, or whatever, can count in certain ways um, as environmental great powers. So we're getting here a somewhat bigger list um, than the normal conventional list of great powers would be because we're dealing with great powers in this sector. So quite a lot of what the book is doing is trying to, in a sense, adapt the idea of great powers to the particularities uh, of uh, the environmental sector. And this hasn't really been done before. So uh, to the extent that the book is trying to carve out a contribution, uh, that's one big aspect of it. The, uh, a couple of other points to make, uh, I don't have much time here, is that we're, we're rather assuming, um, because we're operating in the contemporary environment, we're making some assumptions about what that environment is. And broadly, that assumption goes under the label of deep pluralism. Um, uh, this is not yet a, a, a term of art, but I'm hoping it will become so. Uh, and deep pluralism basically means the following things about the general state of the of world. Again, um, all too evident in the uh, in current events. The first aspect of deep uh, pluralism is that there's a wider diffusion of wealth and power beyond just some small core um, of states, and that probably this is heading towards a position in which there will be no superpowers. Huh? China isn't going to get there. The United States uh, is losing its status as a superpower. Superpowers are a peculiar um, uh, artifact of the period of Western domination. That period is itself coming to an end. And therefore, another feature of deep pluralism is that it's moving into, and very quickly, into a post-Western era. Not only is there a diffusion of wealth and power, there's a diffusion of cultural and political authority away from the West. Um, and that uh, there's a, a good deal of kind of post-colonial baggage left over from this, uh, post-colonial baggage in the sense of the West and others largely forgetting what they did, um, but newly empowered uh, countries like, uh, like uh, China, for example, and India and others very much remembering the colonial experience and not forgetting it, um, so that this is still very much in play 
um, in contemporary international politics and a difficulty, um, and it's one that plays into uh, the particularities of environmental politics in the form of who's responsible for climate change, those nasty old colonial powers. So it, it, it flows into, uh, uh, into that. There's also a sense in which deep pluralism means that it's not just the diffusion of power to states, a wider circle of states, but also to a wider circle of non-state actors. Um, some of these have quite considerable capabilities. Um, some of them are nice and some of them are nasty, which you put in which category will depend on your own point of view. But these uh, non-state actors vary from militant groups um, to things like uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, who, who have real capabilities to, uh, to do things uh, in the world that, uh, that states can also do, but that can now be done by, by non-state actors as well. And they are also big in the, in the lobbying business. Now, uh, this deep pluralist view uh, can cut in two directions. It could be a, um, uh, a, a rather conflictual formation. And at the moment, that looks like the way it's going. It looks like we're heading into a second Cold War, which will last for quite a long time, uh, probably longer than me. Um, or it could be um, a more consensual form um, if you abandon the realist assumption that things have to be conflictual. Uh, deep pluralism could be consensual. In other words, it could be an understanding that diversity and political and cultural difference are actually rather good things um, and should be appreciated uh, and all of that. It could unfold in that way. Um, so far, however, uh, I think the betting would have to go that what we're going to get is a, is a rather conflictual uh, version of deep pluralism. And that takes me to the last point, which is that um, the uh, great power responsibilities and their, their management responsibilities have traditionally been hinged to whether or not an issue has been successfully securitized. So the general role of great powers and, for instance, their legitimate place um, in the UN Security Council hinges on the idea that they're there to deal with the security agenda. So it makes a big difference uh, in discussing great powers and uh, uh, global environmental politics uh, as to whether what's under discussion, namely in this case, uh, climate change has been securitized. So the book devotes some attention to this, uh, to this issue, uh, arguing uh, that in the main, uh, climate change has so far not been successfully securitized, and therefore the managerial responsibilities of great powers remain quite ambivalent about this. Some of them don't accept the responsibility at all, and therefore there's not a necessary alignment uh, between where the capabilities are um, and where uh, the acceptance of responsibility is located. So that's basically uh, how this book is framed. Thank you. Thanks so much, Barry, for setting out the bigger context within which this book operates. And that's really helpful also to get your perspective on the sort of move towards a more deep pluralist international society. I think what we're witnessing at the moment in Ukraine is certainly playing into that. Good. Let me now uh, give the microphone, the proverbial microphone, to Kathy, Kathy Hochstetler, also from the LSE, who will talk about Brazil. 
Thank you very much, Robert, and thanks for your kind introduction. Um, Barry said that we could talk about what is power for hours, and I'm about to prove that. Um, have some questions of that kind myself to raise. And it's interesting, I'm talking about Brazil tonight, and that's my chapter in the book. And I'm sure there are at least some people on this call who wonder if Brazil is really a great power. And in fact, what I'm finding these days is that it's exactly my Brazilian friends and collaborators who are the ones who are most likely to doubt that Brazil is a great power. Um, and so I'm not saying anything that would offend many Brazilians. Uh, many of them themselves have these questions about, is this country really a great power? Uh, it, will it ever be? And the title of my chapter actually identifies Brazil as a boundary case. And it's a boundary case in the sense that it's not, not a great power. Um, we, we, we can't necessarily say for sure that it is always a great power, but we also can't say for sure that it's not a great power. And especially when we're looking at a topic like an environmental topic, which is a topic that has a timeline of decades. And there we can see that actually over decades, this is a country that should be in our book because it is doing things that are really important over a longer time period in the environmental area. And I think the, the ambiguous position that Brazil is in, in some ways a great power, in some ways not a great power, is in fact really instructive. And I think we can learn a lot about what it means to be a great power by trying to parse out exactly what is and is not a great power about a boundary case like Brazil. And so some of the chapter then is about trying to discuss what that might mean in the abstract and for the Brazilian case in particular. And one of the first things one has to say about Brazil is that in this issue area, Brazil is a great power. So in the environmental issue area, Brazil is a clear great power in ways that it might not be such a great power in say trade. Um, but when you look at the size of Brazil's tropical rainforests, when you look at the number of species that are present in the country, when you look at a whole series of environmental indicators, this is a great power. This is a country that really holds substantial quantities of all of the worst resources in a whole array of areas. And because of its strength in forests and because of their role in being one of the sources of greenhouse gas emissions, especially as they're cut and, and otherwise um, destroyed, then Brazil becomes a climate great power too, because it really has a substantial influence on whether or not the world will be able to meet its collective climate ambitions. So I think for this issue area then, it's pretty unambiguous. But it's interesting then to think about what, that, what it means to say this about Brazil, because what it means is that a lot of its power is really a negative power and its ability to destroy environmental resources that we care about that are the clearest source of its power in this issue area. Because if Brazil cuts down the Amazon, if deforestation rates continue to rise as they have been in recent years, we will have a hard time meeting our global goals at, on biodiversity as well as on climate. And so a country like Brazil then exercises a really critical veto role in a lot of international environmental discussions because of the way if it's not cooperating, 
the agreement will have trouble coming to an agreement. And that's because of this environmental power and this essentially negative power. And we saw this very concretely, like when Brazil effectively blocked with some of the other forest powers, the, the writing of a global forest treaty in 1992, which was meant to coexist along with the climate and biodiversity agreements. It was the forest powers that refused that. And if they weren't on board, there couldn't be a meaningful forest treaty. But there's also a strategic dimension to power. What is it that a country does with its power resources? Is it ambitious with them? Does it underplay them? And the corollary then is that environmental power, Brazil's environmental power used to lead solutions. Is it a positive power as well? Does it try to bring its power to lead solutions at home and abroad or does it block them? And what, a, what I argue in the chapter is that we find Brazil sometimes being constructive and sometimes not so constructive. And that that is actually, I argue, something that we should expect of a boundary case, one that will not be clearly falling in any of a set of roles. When we look at what it did empirically at home, it had really remarkable ability to reduce deforestation in the first years of the 2000s, annual deforestation rates dropped some 80% from 2005 to 2012. And interestingly, in those years, Brazil was also an ambitious participant in global climate negotiations, where Lula comes to Copenhagen in 2009 and says, we don't need the world's money to, the, to protect the environment. We actually can pay ourselves and we can do it. And so there, this was a moment when the skills at home led to real diplomatic initiatives. But we find Brazil now in a very different position. There's a complex story I can talk about in the questions of a lot of political backlash that undermined many of those policies. And we now also find Brazil threatening to leave the Paris Agreement and barely kept in the agreement and being not a particularly positive power there. So in many cases for a power like Brazil, we find what's going on at home in domestic politics of forests and biodiversity being very influential in the kinds of roles that it chooses to play internationally or not. And overall then I would say that a big part of its power position and power positioning is that an outgrowth of the domestic political economy and of its very boundary circumstance not fully developed, not exactly not developing. And so that influences the kinds of positions that Brazil is willing to take in an international arena. And so a boundary power becomes a boundary contributor, sometimes a positive and sometimes a negative contributor to global environmental governance. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much, Kathy. Um, just a reminder to the audience, if you would like to put questions to the panel, use the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. And, and also to remind you, we have an international panel with two speakers, as thanks to Zoom being able to join us from abroad. I'm now going abroad, not too far, to Germany indeed, where Miriam is going to talk about India, a case not too dissimilar from the Brazilian case, but a clearly important one in the environmental field. So we're looking forward to what you have to say, Miriam, over to you. Thank you very much for the kind introduction. And as Robert said at the beginning, um, despite the difficult and scary situation today, climate change doesn't go away simply because our minds are necessarily elsewhere and international society needs to find a way to take urgent and coordinated action. India, as the events today and in the past day show, isn't really an easy partner in this. 
um, India also, and for a long time, um, has seen itself as a marginalized actor in international politics, one with aspiration and the right to sit at the table due to its size, its cultural impact, its standing in the world. And the issue of status, status anxiety, and emotions are important drivers for Indian foreign policy. Issues of reputation um, intersect with very clear material needs and interests and lead some to sometimes ambivalent or even strange decisions. I think this describes the situation with Ukraine, but it also describes India's global climate politics. Um, so to the topic of the check, the, is India a great power? And um, as just stated, there are important parallels with Brazil, but also important differences. Um, so the desire for great power status is real, but recognition isn't, at least uh, universally. Um, India is a nuclear power, but it's not in the nuclear suppliers group. It has shown enormous economic growth, but it's still overall uh, on a comparatively low level of economic development. And um, in all of that, its traditional stance on non-alignment and a strong aversion against colloquial said being told what to do um, informs uh, its positions. And so while it escapes clear categorization, it is clearly a formidable candidate for great power status and one that absolutely needs to be looked at within any global policy issue. Um, so what about climate change? Is India an environmental grow, um, great power? Again, India has a rather complicated position between those who have responsibility for causing the problem and those who have the capacity to respond to the problem and those who are vulnerable to it and strongly need support to adapt. Um, in other words, India does uh, also not really fit neatly into the North-South or Annex 1, non-Annex 1 categorization. And while it has... Um, wide environmental great power potential and you know, only considering the size of its population and foreseeable economic development means that, for example, that if India follows a high carbon growth path, international society as a whole will definitely not be able to keep the two degree goal. Um, while this is obviously concerning, should the needed investments flow into low carbon solutions that might lower prices for solar, for LED and so on, this may have an exemplary effect on the whole world. And India has already expanded its investment in solar PV, yet the annual average share of solar and wind energy for the entire country was only 8.2% in 2021. And the rebound in coal demand above 2019 levels drove a significant increase in emissions in India with global effects. So yet while India's extent for environmental negative power is great, its, abil its ability to capitalize on it needs to be assessed in light of its equally large environmental vulnerabilities. For instance, the um, latest IPCC report um, from last week finds that South Asia is a global hotspot of high human vulnerability with food security risk, droughts, floods, heat waves, and so on. Many of these risks are already really very much tangible in India and have resulted in a high number of casualties over the past years. So the question is, does this vulnerability thwart environmental power? So on the one hand, extreme vulnerability should be expected to make India more dependent on effective global environmental governance, hence decrease negative power. However, vulnerability could also be turned into strength and hence positive environmental power if India is able uh, to showcase how vulnerability can be tackled and its material, symbolic and reputational environment power environmental power may agree. So in that fashion, the Indian government increasingly portrays itself as one of the key global leaders in tackling vulnerabilities itself and helping other states of the global south to do so, for instance, through its poster project of the International Solar Alliance. Overall, so this presents a rather mixed picture, might be called a boundary case, obviously, as well, um, of environmental power. And much it much depends much on India's attempts to shape 
itself the kinds of responsibility it needs to take on or not in line with its growing ambitions in international society. So in my chapter, I discuss how actors work with shifting notions of responsibility and attempts to shape their own and other responsibilities in this way. And I argue that this is really relevant as clashes in understandings of responsibilities are after all, all among the core obstacles in international climate cooperation. So India is often represented in the literature um, having already graduated in a rather linear fashion in parallel with its economic development in the climate change regime from being a developing state with little responsibility to a leading powerful state with clear readiness to take on responsibilities with a clear inflection point at the 2009 COP in Copenhagen. Much of the scholarship focuses on this shift and tries to explain it. And this narrative is also fairly thankfully repeated uh, in the current Indian governmental statements, um, drawing praise from the world in taking the lead. And while I'm not discussing here or even contesting that this may very, be very well the case, um, uh, I'd, I'd rather show that this narrative immersion isn't actually that clear cut. Um, so on the one hand, 2009 hasn't made any significant changes in India's current narrative and trying to hold on to the differentiated legal architecture within the UNFCCC. India's INDC fully and wholly embraces its self-representation as developing country, and it continues to point at the failure of the developed world. At the same time, also its rhetoric about being ready to take up responsibilities is not something new after 2009 and has begun. We can find many statements um, in the early 2000s. So there's no kind of linear graduation that somehow happened with its economic rise. So that's two things we need to disconnect. And this ambivalence is a constant feature and not entirely surprising. And India uses this duality of its identity. So on the one hand developing, on the one hand leading to actually um, in different contexts to actually pursue its interests. It uses shows different sets of identities clustered around on the one hand on the theme of victim, on the other hand, on the theme of, um, of, uh, uh, of the theme of hero. And this ex apparent exceptionality of its own achievement, it seems to be an effective negotiation tool as it can be used to strategically avert unwanted responsibilities while maintaining the idea of acting as a great responsible power or even hero in light of adverse circumstances. Um, so I also talk in the, um, the literature about India as an obvious regional power, but again, there's no obvious uh, linear development from the presence of a regional power, the need for cooperation, obviously in South Asia and the actual cooperation um, as such. And second, lastly, I also consider the important issue of recognition of others, um, but that's not so much the case for India, particularly um, and only recently specific expectations have been raised, um, particularly in comparison to China. So summing up quickly, India faces this duality in its own identity and position in the global climate regime. On the one hand, it continues to take on the role of the developing country with limited historic responsibilities. On the other hand, is it currently the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases and cannot shy away from addressing this. India is experimenting with accepting some limited responsibilities in the design of its NDC targets, for example, or in declaring a net zero target in Glasgow, in addition to this specific solar power ambition, but this has not challenged its long held position and orientations within a rather rigid north-south division of responsibilities. 
Um, so despite promising preconditions, India's move to great environmental power status as within other traditional policy fields, and there's lots of parallels, seems to be on hold. Um, yet we can also see that India does have considerable leverage over its own politics of responsibility. Stated differently, um, to me it seems that India is a power that is very much able to decide its own face, fate uh, in the design of its domestic climate policies according to its interests and in, in the shape of its global engagement um, in the way that suits itself best. So while not quite matching the characteristics of a true great power, this independence will certainly play an important part in India's future role in climate change. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Miriam. Okay, uh, this brings me down to the last opening statement. We're going to take a big jump over the Atlantic to where the sun still shines. I can see Stacy still has a, enjoys a bit of uh, daylight where he's working in on the east coast of the United States. We've so far heard about two major powers in the global south, but we haven't really talked about some of the more northern powers. And Stacey, I think you're going to focus on great coal powers. You're taking a different lens. You're looking at coal power as a defining characteristic of, of great powers in the environmental field. And I think you're going to bring in a bit more of that northern perspective. So Stacey, over to you. Uh, thank you, Robert. Um, hello from the other side, I guess I should say. Um, uh, the chapter is called World on Fire, Coal Politics and Great Power Responsibility. Um, my co-author and um, and uh, occasional collaborator, his name is Tim Borsma, by the way. So many thanks to Tim for um, lots of uh, good work together on this over the years. Um, Tim used to be at uh, the Energy Institute at Columbia University, and he is now working in sustainability and energy transition issues for ABM AMRO. Um, so he's, he's taken his political science PhD and plunged into the, uh, to the, to the, to the world of, uh, of, uh, of muddy hands. Um, so thanks also to Barry and Robert. This has been a really great project um, to be a part of, so I'm, I'm really thrilled uh, to be a part of it. Um, this chapter, as Robert said, um, cuts into these questions of responsibility a bit differently. Um, and in some respects, it corresponds with some of my um, interests in resource and material politics. Um, it seems to me that we can learn a lot by, about global politics historically and, um, and in the contemporary age by um, picking a particular resource or set of material objects and uh, and uh, and understanding politics through them, so you know we we know that we can um, understand a lot about the international system we've had for the last uh, two or three hundred years um, and the one we have now by looking at cotton and tea um, and diamonds and gold um, and of course um, we know that coal has played a central issue in a, in a, in a lot of it. Uh, national politics. So the question is, you know, what can we learn about great power responsibility, great powers and their inclinations to take and or act on responsibility by focusing on um, this particular resource and then um, thinking comparatively about some of them. So uh, what did we do? Um, uh, um, and I should have uh, given myself my little timer, so I'm sorry I didn't. Uh, um, the first is that we tried to specify what it would, what responsible uh, responsibility looks like for a great power around coal, and here we sort of zeroed in on a, a, a two dimensions. One, of course, is about climate change, the need to reduce um, coal burning and the emissions of coal, potentially around sort of funding R and D or alternatives, moving to cleaner sources of energy than uh, than, than is coal, 
Um, we looked uh, also at some sort of the uh, kind of incentives environment, um, um, who is trying to reduce subsidies and incentives to burn more coal or increase disincentives. And, uh, and then of course, these um, uh, great power cases, which I'll specify here in a minute, um, they play a role in the international system and international organizations. And in particular, you know, um, uh, what are what are some of these great powers doing with regard to policies on World Bank or other multilateral development bank financing of coal or their own financing of coal and their um, export import banks and these sorts of things. The other dimension, though, about great power responsibility around coal is that climate change and uh, is you know and it's sort of the necessity of emissions reduction is not the only morally upstanding um, uh, sort of necessity in the international system. We have a whole, also a, a lot of goals and a lot of um, uh, um, important sort of moral, sorry, morally important goals around energy, around energy poverty, poverty alleviation, um, um, and this sort of set of what you might think of as the sustainable development goals sort of area. So a responsible, Coal, a responsible power, it seems to us, um, is one that is taking uh, coal policy into into uh, um, uh, into consideration around climate, but also one that can't that has to do so without making energy poverty worse or without failing to meet their needs on poverty alleviation um, and the participation in those sets of goals. So, what did we do? Um, a second uh, aspect here is that we focused on three cases. Um, when we are we're asking about great power responsibility and these sort of several dimensions of responsibility. Those cases are the United States, the European Union and its member states and China. Like all international relations scholarship, we've fudged um, the question of the pesky question of whether or not the European Union is an it or a they um, and just decided that, um, that uh, it's, a, it's an it and a they and a, and a single and a multiple. Um, uh, so we take these three cases. Um, we do at the very end of the chapter put um, uh, try to do a kind of complete, sort of brief comparative comparative box on some information about Australia, India, Indonesia, and Russia. And here on this question of who is a great power, that, that sort of emerges as a kind of interesting list, right, and the kind of conversations of great powers, because India. Uh, Australia, Indonesia, and Russia make this list of our comparators at the end precisely because they're all four so important with regard to coal, exporters, importers, burners, um, uh, and uh, and so. But it, in some respects, is an is an otherwise a rather odd mix: Australia, India, Indonesia, and Russia. So we can kind of talk a little bit about that if anybody's interested. And then the third thing that we said we wanted to do when we were looking at these three cases: the U.S., the European Union, and China is to distinguish between rhetorical acceptance of responsibility, um, the kind of discourses of responsibility and the kind of material action, the implementation of this. So um, what, did, what did we find? Um, and I can go into uh, details as people want in the questions, but let, let's get there. Um, what do we find? Rhetorically, the European Union, I think it won't surprise anyone here, is the sort of clearest and most consistent rhetorical acceptor of global responsibility. So you see over and over again um, that in the area of climate, around issues of coal, and particularly in other um, in emissions, you get uh, lots of explicit acceptance of responsibility. Um, but interestingly, um, that 
that um, global acceptance of climate responsibility has not translated into a global acceptance of responsibility for coal sort of writ large. Here, we have to look down at the member states um, in, into the politics of member states to see these differences, where you've got a kind of series of, of states, uh, member states that have announced and or already enacted or in the process of enacting their coal phase out deadlines. Some, a couple of states have even announced deadlines and then moved them up over the last two or three years, trying to get there quick, more quickly. And these are goals which are rhetorically justified um, um, uh, with reference to climate change. So we see this sort of a multiple level uh, kind of environmental federalist policy and, re and rhetorical acceptance. In China, you see a kind of clear trend toward greater um, uh, acceptance of uh, global responsibility with regard to coal and climate change. And in, for China, this is you know, particularly vexing because of course, uh, over half of the world's coal burning now takes place in China. So if there are any superpowers left in this area, um, chi China is a coal superpower. Um, and uh, and what, we, but what you do see is the increasing acceptance over the last few years, right, that global responsibilities around climate change necessitate global responsibilities for China um, around coal policy. So the, 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 so the rhetoric has moved in the direction of needing you know, an emissions uh, um, uh, a peak, needing to move down from there, and, and the rhetorical acceptance that this has implications for coal in China because you can't do those things without attention to coal emissions. And then the United States, of course, uh, potentially won't surprise uh, uh, you either, uh, is the most contentious and inconsistent of the rhetorical acceptors of responsibility, um, having to do with the different occupants really of the White House over the last 20 years. So you see um, some fairly stark differences from the Obama years and uh, um, a very explicit acceptance of global responsibility around emissions and even some discussion of coal uh, gently um, um, to, the, uh, to the others, uh, um, the ones who became, became before and after Obama less so. So when we move to acting responsibly here, um, we go through these various criteria and you find that of course all three of these powers have a very mixed record, um, uh, unsurprisingly, on, on coal action. Um, uh, and I think you see this both at home and abroad, but there is a clear trend in the three of them, the three of them have become ever more forceful in the rhetoric of ending coal financing, of uh, moving the international system and the finance system generally toward a reduction in investments in coal, to calling explicitly for coal to be um, if internationally for coal to be sort of uh, no longer the, the fuel of the future. So you see this direction. Um, all three of them, however, are much more conflicted about this at home. If we think about the European Union as a whole unit and the United States and China, where despite the kind of growing movement for coal phase out deadlines subnationally in Europe and in the United States and in, and, and in a number of other places in the world, um, at the level of the European Union and the US federal government, we do not see an explicit coal phase out. And here I think that tells us, you know, it tells us what we know, but in this reference in terms of responsibility, that I, I think we should look when we're asking questions about um, great power responsibility, we have to not make the mistake of traditional international relations scholarship by kind of black boxing the domestic politics. This is one of the many issues in which whether or not nation states or, or in the case of the European Union, the kind of federalist center of Europe, 
whether or not you're taking uh, responsibility globally for something like coal emissions is entirely about domestic politics. You know, they're, they're sort of happy to have inclusive rhetoric about responsibility for climate change, but the exact nature of what we do about coal emissions, for example, that's domestic politics, um, um, pretty much regardless of, uh, of promises made in cities like um, Copenhagen and Paris. Um, I think, uh, lastly, let's um, get around to um, uh, one more point, which I think uh, might, might matter a lot, is that we do suggest that the, the kind of, there is, we do suggest because there's evidence in the discourses of these, in all three of these countries, that it gets to be a little easier to accept and act on responsibility if the costs of doing so appear to be declining. And so what you do see is some pinning of, um, you see it most explicitly in American rhetoric, probably unshocked, not shockingly, um, uh, but, but uh, what you see, right, is that as the alternatives to coal are coming down in price, in terms of price competitiveness, we, we find that there's a greater willingness to, to, to note that when you note that you're accepting responsibility that coal emissions have to come down, right? That you're, you're again telling your domestic audiences that it's not gonna to be too expensive. And here, I think this is just a little, maybe a little American nudge at the English school um, or a little, a little poke is that the, the, the English school sometimes is a, is, a, is a bit silent about the dirty business of money and paying for things. Um, in its rhetoric about uh, and its discussion and thinking about why uh, powers take on responsibilities for the system as a whole. And it seems to me that the coal sort of demonstrates that there's there's both some domestic politics, but there's also some political economy in here about what we can and what we feel we can and cannot do and what responsibilities we may or may not want to take aboard. Thanks. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Wonderful. Thank you, Stacey. Um, we shall have to come back on that English school question uh, later on. Um, but I, I had prepared a few questions and lots popped up during your presentations, but I'm going to uh, uh, not put in my own question because there, there are a lot of questions coming from the audience. Uh, so I'm going to go straight into Q&A with the audience. And if you're in the audience and you still want to put your question, please do so now. This is your chance to get in. Now, I'd like to first take questions from our students at the LSE. Uh, so let's see, I can see one question that came in relatively early from Tina Bay, who, who's a LSE international relations student, she's in her third year, and uh, if memory serves me right, she's doing her undergraduate dissertation on climate negotiations, so she's used the opportunity to uh, quiz this panel to help her with her dissertation, perhaps. It's an interesting question, she says, would you consider small island states such as Grenada and Tuvalu as another form of power in international climate negotiations, perhaps unconventional power, certainly not great powers, but what kind of powers are they? Uh, and that is indeed one of the gaps in our book that we didn't consider, which is if there are great powers, what about all the other states that are trying to shape the process? Now, this is an interesting question. Uh, I'm sure many of you will want to come in on the panel, but may I ask Alina to come in first, because Alina has been following the negotiations at the various COPs for a long time, and she will have observed the small island states in, in various forms. So Alina, would you like to start on this one? Uh, 
Uh, sure, thank you, Robert, and good evening, everyone. You know, that's a great question. And if we look at the small island developing states, um, they don't actually have uh, key characteristics of great powers in terms of structural characteristics. They don't have a big influence of environmental resources. They don't have economic power to help address climate change. But uh, the type of power they have actually been exerting in the course of climate negotiations has been a positive power. What, what, what we talk about in the book, the ability to actually impact in a positive way climate negotiations. And I particularly would actually go to the example of the Republic of Marshall Island, Islands, or when um, ahead of the negotiations of the Paris Agreement, they played a crucial role in forming what is called um, the High Ambition Coalition, which now has over 60 states, uh, but Marshall Islands actually launched the coalition and led the effort. And uh, the coalition has been critical in actually getting reference to 1.5 degrees and to making Paris Agreement uh, more ambitious. So I think that's, that's actually a very real tangible example of how uh, small island uh, developing states um, actually exert a positive power in international climate negotiations. And uh, to me, the type of power um, they, uh, they project uh, comes more from the normative aspect, uh, because climate change for them is, is, is an issue of existence, existential crisis, and they have been very effective in uh, pushing and influencing the normative, um, normative narrative around climate negotiations, pushing for the notion of responsibility uh, being as an important one in the negotiations, but also introducing concepts of climate justice um, and equity. So that's, that's how I feel about it. Great, thank you. Any other panelists who want to come in on that? Stacy, I see your hand, and Barry. Just very quickly, I think I've, uh, it's not a small island states example, but it's a smaller uh, states and subnational politics example. The kind of um, building or um, growing um, momentum around coal phase out deadlines and explicit coal phase out policies seems to me to be another good example of, the, of exactly what Alina was talking about is that um, you've got 11 or 12 members of the European Union and a former member of the European Union, which have official uh, dates. We have a number of US states. And it seems to me that, you know, that's about sort of creating the, they're norming coal as a bad, right? And so the idea here is that you're, you're, you're joining this chorus um, to, uh, to, to assert um, uh, rights and wrongs, appropriateness and lack of appropriateness for something like coal. And it has, of course, begun in a number of states, um, uh, maybe you might say most able to do this, but it's now that we've now moved on to some very traditional coal, old school traditional coal states who are now getting rid of it. That's great. Um, Barry, um, is it, am I right in thinking that a lot of IR scholars who work with great power theories tend to ignore the agency of the lesser powers who therefore perhaps develop a, a kind of a, a narrow view of, of what matters in these negotiations? Oh, well, not, not guilty, Robert. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the point I wanted to make was simply that uh, one of the avenues towards, I won't say great power, but great influence that small states can take is through the way they conduct their diplomacy. Uh, once upon a time, a long time ago, I studied the, uh, the Law of the Sea Conference. And what was outstanding in that was the way a couple of small states like Malta, for example, uh, or Norway, um, had a huge impact on the negotiations because they had very high quality diplomats who were very expert in the subject and had a very clear program that they wanted to promote. And more to the point, uh, because this was a long negotiation, 
those small countries left their diplomats in place and were able to run rings around you know, Britain and America and others who, who rotate their diplomats every two years in order to make sure they don't go native to whatever it is they're, they're doing. If you'll pardon that now unacceptable phrase. Um, but, but that was an incredibly effective tactic because these guys became in effect the grandfathers of the negotiations. They knew everything and everybody and they could put together the coalitions uh, and all of that kind of thing. So there are, there are ways for uh, very small states to be heavy hitters in these negotiations. Kathy. And I was just gonna add one small point, which is that I think another example of their positive diplomacy was the way in which they were really influential in leveraging the, the boundary powers, the Brazils and the Indias, there, there came a point, particularly in Copenhagen, where they began to say, everyone must be part of climate action, which was very clearly targeted at these big states that were their partners in the G77 of, of, of developing states. And so that, that was a really critical wedge role that they played in that Copenhagen negotiation that ended up, I think, breaking open some of the real sclerotic parts of the climate negotiations. That's an interesting point. There's another question which goes in the same direction. I want to bring it in now before we move into a different direction from Bianca Kinelli, who is an alumna of the LSE Ideas Master's Program, the Executive Master's Program, and she's currently doing a PhD in Lisbon. She asks, what about large transnational companies, especially oil and gas? Uh, how do they fit into your analysis of non-state great power? Are there perhaps great powers in the non-state actor realm that we should also be thinking about here? Great question. Would anyone like to tackle that one? I can say just a bit. I mean, but I think pretty clearly, if you have an understanding of a negative power to destroy as making a country a, a, a powerful actor in the international system, you know, these kinds of big powers in the non-governmental world are very much also actors that have a really clear power to destroy. And there are various articles that are around that have been pointing out that a number of the big um, carbon major companies actually have emissions that are far beyond those of most nation states. If you look at the emissions associated with their historical production. And so I think on the negative power to destroy, you certainly have a very clear role there for them to play. And I haven't yet seen them playing much of the positive role. I, I agree with the lack of a positive role. I, I would say that I think the last few days of a number of uh, prominent oil uh, and gas companies separating themselves from their Russian investments suggests that we should continue to remind powerful states that actually the combination of powerful states, uh, authority and, uh, and public pressure can in fact bring corporations to heal. We shouldn't, we shouldn't view some corporations as too large to make do things because in fact we have, states have authority to make them do things. Um, uh, it it simply needs to be exercised. Mm. I think it's also worth noting that a lot of activists, climate activists are now targeting some of these so-called carbon majors. Um, if we look at the incidents of climate litigation against those big private firms that are chewing out emissions, they are certainly uh, being noted and being targeted in an increasing way. Perhaps you don't want to be noted as a, a non-state great power if, if you're in, in, in the sort of in that category, ending up in the courts. 
Uh, Alina, very briefly, and then I'll move on. Thank you. Just a footnote on the potential positive uh, power or positive uh, positive role of non-state actors. I think the developments coming out of COP26 in Glasgow, in particular the commitments by the financial sectors, the Glasgow Financial Alliance, I think that has a huge potential if implemented and if those pledges would be met. Um, I think companies with over $160 trillion in capital committing to net zero um, and to aligning their portfolios financial portfolios with the targets of meeting net zero, I think that could actually be a very, very important way of exerting economic power to actually um, foster decarbonization at the rate that we need to happen, potentially larger at scale than some of the political forms of power, but that's, that's an interesting question. Great, thank you so much for that. Okay, I'm going to move on to another question which uh, is from Rifa Nanjiba, who's doing the MSc in Human Geography and Urban Studies at the LSE. And she wanted to come back to Miriam's point about India's dual identity. And she notes that a lot of developing countries are in this position where they um, play up their victim identity. They are going to suffer enormously from climate change. But at the same time, their rising emissions profile makes them a key player in this area. And, and, and Rifa is asking, um, what can be done to ensure that countries like India and similar countries don't shirk their responsibility hiding behind victim status? And I think this goes to the, the heart of the, the current effort to broaden the range of powers that are taking part in, in the global effort to reduce emissions. Um, Miriam, you've already alluded to it. Would you like to start and then yeah. I'll, I'll throw it open to everyone else? Sure. I mean, some of this has been already said. I mean, India is is very receptive to accusations and and holding accountable by coalition's partners from the G77, for example. I mean, um, I think it came of quite a shock to to India that all of a sudden it was receiving blame from, um, as Kathy said, from these smaller states. So I think that that could be an important uh, uh, issue of of leverage. Um, the other thing is that. Um, and that's also has been said the domestic level is obviously really important and I think uh, once connections are made to really crucial issues within India or other states such as air pollution water shortness very clearly linked to the issue of climate change I think this is where the leverage from multiple levels uh, uh, would need to come in great anyone else otherwise I'll move on and bring in another question Okay, good. So I then have a question about um, from Matthew Johnson, who's an alumnus, who asks about whether uh, in light of recent developments in the Ukraine and Russia, it is time to think of go becoming more aggressive against uh, oil and other fossil fuel exporting states. And he asked what role can carbon tariffs play in this area. This clearly speaks to the theme of great power politics that we've been engaging with. How does one get tougher on those countries that keep producing and exporting uh, high carbon energy? I can Thank start, you. Robert. Yes, please, Alina, please go ahead. Um, so taking the case of Russia, uh, obviously the economic sanctions following uh, the 2018 um, aggression against Ukraine and most recently were not targeting climate priorities and are not targeting climate priorities, but um, measures to, um, to address um, uh, climate dimension through carbon border adjustments 
um, have also been introduced and the EU's climate border adjustment mechanism, CBAM, is, uh, is a case in point. And uh, that has actually been a very important factor have, which has influenced climate change policies in Russia over the past year. I think, um, you know, if, if you read my chapter in the book, which addresses Russian climate policy, you know, it has gone through the period of stagnation um, and um, very much, I think, last six months, last eight months since the EU has announced that the mechanism is coming into force, we have seen in Russia a very strong push from the private sector for um, greater action, climate change for visibility. And so um, I can say just looking at that case, um, the um, CBAM, the carbon border tax adjustment has, has definitely had a great impact. Now, that in combination with sanctions, I think, uh, you know, my, my assessment is that unfortunately, uh, with what is currently happening, uh, climate agendas pretty much has moved down uh, the last list of priorities, but we'll have to see how that develops. Thank you. Wonderful, thank you. Um, Stacey, I want to turn to you. Uh, there's, there was another question which is about Australia's role in this uh, as a, one of the great coal powers. Um, what do we do about the countries that are both reluctant to engage and do something, but also have huge uh, environmental power in the negative sense, the ability to obstruct, to destroy? How do we go after them? And, and that might also give you a chance to answer the question about how do you think about Australia in this area? Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, um, so I think um, my view remains that one of the things that many of the climate activists are right about is that the best way to get at the problem of massive fossil fuel exporters um, would be for the biggest users of fossil fuel to simply use a lot less of them. So um, what we must do is reduce consumption, which then drives down price, um, which then, then makes them less likely to make the kinds of multi-billion dollar investments in new and expanded fossil fuel extraction that is designed to you know, pay back over 20 and 30 years. We're still making those investments around the world because there is still the every expectation that someone is going to buy all of that. So I think that um, the con consumption reduction is the first is the first place I would go before border adjustments. Um, uh, and, <clears throat> uh, in that in that sense, um, the Australian case is um, is an interesting case. Um, it is um, the one that is closest to the American one in the sense of, of being very conflicted, even about responsibility acceptance. So um, at the kind of high level of rhetoric about climate change, there's plenty of you know, pro-cooperation rhetoric about climate change and our all of our things. But, the, um, but um, various Australian governments have been pretty clear that they simply don't think that it is their responsibility to take responsibility for any of the coal that is other people, read mostly China, are buying uh, um, um, to, for Australians from which Australians profit. So I think you see there like that you can you can see the limits of responsibility acceptance and certainly the limits of any action that would be suggested if you um, accept responsibility. Um, and uh, so that the one. Um, and and secondly, you 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 uh, I started by saying that it parallels the American case. Um, American presidents, including the current one, are very strong 
in rhetorically on terms of climate um, and climate global and domestic responsibility. Um, but we expressly do not have an official policy to reduce coal consumption. We have a whole bunch of policies that are sneaking around and trying to result in the reduction of coal consumption, but we have very few uh, national political leaders who want to step up to the microphone and say that we should actually be using no coal. Um, so you see the kind of the challenge of domestic politics, despite the fact that the industry has gotten really small, despite the fact that it's very geographically concentrated, all of these things, it's still the case that we have no official, like, you know, phase out policy or politics, really, that, you know, the, there are very few, there are no Democrats championing um, uh, an explicit phase out goal. Kathy, did you want to come in on this? Well, I just wanted to make a small point, but I think it is quite relevant, which is that the United Nations and most people talking about it, and we in our books tend to talk about these issues almost exclusively from the point of view of producers. So Australia is a major producer. Um, you know, it's an open question to me whether we wouldn't be better off talking about these issues from the point of view of consumers. And once we start talking about the consumers of greenhouse gas emissions, whether it be in the form of coal or other fossil fuels or products from deforestation, I think you get a different, you would get a different list of who are the great powers. It would have some overlap, of course, with the great producers. But, you know, it is interesting to me that most of this debate focuses on the producers, whereas the consumers arguably are the actors, I mean, somebody will sell coal to China as long as China is demanding coal. And that becomes a really important part of the dynamic. And, and as I say, we really didn't take up that issue in our book at all. We adopted the, the, the broader understanding of the focus on production, but the consumption issue I think really is also key. Which is also coming into sharper relief right now in Europe, as we realize just how dependent we are on, on energy imports from Russia, I think. Very good point. Okay, let me move on. Um, there's a question from uh, Tamaki Takao. Actually, uh, Tamaki Takao put four questions in there. So I will have to edit them and bring them down a little bit uh, so that others um, will be able to come in as well. But they're interesting also conceptually because the first question um, uh, is about the great power status and how it works out in different issue areas. This goes to the very question of how we think about great powers in international relations and how is it possible that we have great powers that reach across all sorts of different issue areas and some are only relevant uh, in some. Barry mentioned um, whaling, for example. On that issue, there are just a few small players and so on. So that's the first question. How do we make this work conceptually? Perhaps a question for Barry. And then the second interesting question, that's a question that I want to just throw open to the panel is, now that the Paris rule book has been completed at COP26 in Glasgow, now that we're moving more into a phase of implementation, um, the suggestion here is from our audience member that perhaps negotiations will be different, will no longer be as conflictual. What role is there for great power politics in this? It's a challenging question for those of us who think that great power politics is, if anything, gaining in significance in this. So what role do great powers play when it comes to the nitty gritty of implementing the agreement? Let's start with the first question about great power status and specific issue areas. Would anyone? Uh, yes. 
That's a tough one. Um, I mean, I think the best I can do is to give a very simple and probably slightly evasive answer, which is to say, if you're looking at the whole range of environmental politics or indeed even beyond that, um, you know, you, you, and you're adopting the framework that we've taken, which is that power is specific to issue areas, then the only way that you can make the study manageable is to narrow the issue areas, right? Which we did in, in our book by focusing mainly on climate change. Now, climate change is already pretty tough because there are several things that uh, go together uh, within, uh, within climate change. So there's forest issues and uh, coal emission issues and, and other, other such like. So it's already quite complicated. Um, I don't think you could do a study like this focusing on great powers that covered all of the issues. I mean, it would just fall, fall to pieces with, uh, with complexity. So the way to go is to tailor your particular study or your particular piece of research to the issue area that you're interested in. If you're interested in whaling, you know, that's a very narrow environmental issue. And then you can identify you know, a relatively small group of players who make that issue tick in, in, in whatever way. Uh, so that's a very narrow one. If you wanted to deal with that sort of you know, the, the, the great sixth extinction, um, then you would need to widen that out quite a lot. And you just have to make a practical decision as to what's actually manageable in research terms and what isn't. That's the best I can do. Sorry, tough question. Indeed, indeed. Very good questions coming up here. Anyone else? Or shall we move on to the question of great power politics in the implementation phase? Who would like to tackle that? Miriam, please. Um... Maybe I have, I have an answer that links the two questions. I mean, when we think about the issues and what the role that we want great powers to play, I mean, it's about enabling itself themselves and others to provide and to achieve these sort of global public goods. And so in the essence, uh, Stacey had man, uh, managed, uh, man, mentioned that before, it's many places all about the money. And I think that's also, and I wonder, I mean, for me, the conflicts on climate change has always been about who's going to pay for it. So I'm I'm not sure whether the negotiations will actually change that much because it's still about who, who's going to pay for it. And I think that's where we would like the great powers probably to go. And I think, um, yeah, you know, paying and setting examples and uh, um, uh, for best practices, I think that's the kind of role that we would like great powers to play. And I wonder and doubt that negotiations will be much different on that account. Yeah, that is a very good point indeed. Stacey, do you want to respond to that? I, I was just going to say that um, I think one of the kind of challenges of the great power conceptualization is that it, it does sort of bring along a lot of baggage of the kind of security-focused unitary state. And it seems to me as we move into the implementation phase, and if we are to get more serious about mitigation goals, for example, and we move into the implementation phase, what you see is that these, these great powers are not terribly unitary in there, right? They are, there is influence peddling, there are giant corporations who are getting way more of what they want in the regulatory phase than they got in the goal setting phase. So things get um, ugly and complex in domestic politics, and they get ugly and complex precisely because who the state serves and whether or not it's providing public goods is the central question of whether or not they're going to implement these climate goals. Because not 
not doing what we need to do on climate is a result of having states that are not serving the public interest globally or domestically, in my view. And that's, you know, it's one of the things we haven't done very well in climate politics is to demonstrate that it's not just a collective action problem we face. Um, it's a whole series of governance problems. And you've also reminded us a very important point that international relations concepts, theories, approaches cannot deal with all dimensions of a, of a global policy challenge such as climate change. So the, the great power lens that we've adopted in this book is, is a unique one and serves its purpose, but cannot be stretched to cover all these complex dimensions, particularly when it comes to sort of industrial change and, and the, 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 the business politics involved. There's a related question on this. Um, this one is coming from um, someone that the panelists will know very well, Peter Haas, who's a senior scholar, distinguished scholar in global environmental politics, who's joined us. Actually, Peter has asked, I think I counted three questions. So again, I will have to editorialize a little bit, Peter. I hope you will forgive me. But I want to bring in his uh, argument where he says, what do you make, what do the panelists make of Stephen Bernstein's argument? Uh, actually, Stephen Bernstein was part of our initial workshop, came to London for, for the uh, kickoff workshop that we conducted. An article he published recently where he says that great powers have so far been quite reluctant to take on special responsibilities in this field, something that we talk about in the book and address. Now, I want to also link up that question with one of my own that I had uh, thought of earlier on, which is to say, it seems some great powers, emerging powers, quite like the idea of becoming more active in the climate field because it might allow them to display a sense of responsibility and leadership. We know that Xi Jinping has talked about China taking on greater responsibility. We've heard about India and, and Brazil uh, oscillating between different stances. So I also want to ask the panelists not just why great powers have not taken on responsibilities, or why are they finding it difficult to, to make sense of the kind of opportunities and costs that come with taking on special responsibilities? What's in it for them? And perhaps is there not enough in it for them? Anyone who would like to start us off on these questions? Well, one of my first responses was just that um, Stephen wrote that article after listening to our first drafts of our chapters. So there's really no incongruence between the empirics driving his article and our and our own arguments, because I think it was listening to us that we saw that. And I'll let Barry take on the trickier question. Barry. Okay, I think um, it's a that question of great power responsibilities can only be understood in the context um, that the great powers are supposed to get rights as well as responsibilities. Um, so you have to think about this in relation to whatever issue area it is you're looking at. And I think one of the one of the points about the global environmental sector is that you know, great power responsibilities are very apparent and everybody's banging on about everything the great powers need to do. But what rights are they getting um, in, uh, in exchange for this? Uh, um, you know, they, they get special rights, like for example, you know, getting a seat on the Security Council and, and all of that kind of thing. 
um, in as a quid pro quo for their uh, their responsibilities. One of the problems in uh, in global environmental politics is that, that there don't seem to be any rights that go along with the big responsibilities, um, and that in itself might, in some sense. Um, define the problem of what Headley Bull nicely called the great irresponsibles. You know, when the great powers are there, <laughs> but they don't take up the responsibilities, so so that uh, international society becomes uh, undermanaged, uh, quite seriously under undermanaged, as it is in the present case. Alina, would you like to come in on this? Thank you. For me, this also has to do with the overall change and and the kind of normative uh, normative change in the international relations over time, and um, generally, I think, decline in um, in in the norm of globalism and and cooperative action over time. If we look at the early nineties when the Rio conventions were adopted, I think the narrative of responsibility um, and great power responsibility was stronger. Certainly. If I look at the case study I've, I've written on Russia, that was certainly the case. And then as over time, I think the national interest narrative um, for great powers, and I think for, for a few other case studies we have considered in this book, that's certainly the case. So I think this, uh, this also goes to, you know, to the broader trend and where we are in terms of internationalism, unfortunately. Yeah. Indeed. I think I would just add that um, I do think that the, the, in some respects, comparable cases of the Chinese trajectory on these issues, the official trajectory, and the European one is instructive. Um, it seems to me that the European Union ha was early to see that being seen as a responsible leader on a number of these issues was legitimizing and credibility building at home and globally. And, um, and so you do see this sort of, uh, uh, as, as Elena uh, noted, the, the normative environment is changing, but it's changing in a number of directions at the same time. Um, and it seems to me that those states which want to be seen in particular, uh, in, in particularly constructive and responsible fashion globally um, are moving in one direction, um, at least rhetorically, um, but, uh, but some are certainly more indifferent than others. Um, and I, I'm gonna think more about Barry's point about what, what rights and benefits have come with uh, responsibility taking, because I think it turns out to be quite, a, quite an important one. Thanks. Great. Um, I'd like to bring in another question from an LSE alumnus, Gino Debo, who wants us to focus about the relationship between law and power in climate politics. My question is to, to which extent can environmental law play a role in the climate area? We've seen recent cases, I mentioned this before, where states and multinational corporations are taken to courts. Uh, they're being forced, as we saw in the Netherlands, in Belgium and other cases, to take tougher climate action. Is there such a development that you detect that might uh, sort of from within states force them to change tack and direction and, and take tougher climate action? Could law become the key lever with which civil society can force states, even reluctant states, to act in a more climate-friendly way? Alina, I know you're involved with the Grantham Institute's Climate Legislation and Litigation Database 
And I should mention it's the world's most comprehensive database that tracks these developments. So anyone listening and who wants to uh, find out more about that should go to the Grantham Institute website. But Alina, tell us more about this. I think law is absolutely central and in particular national law because um, you know the, the international in particular international uh, climate system, it's it's basically soft law. So the compliance, we don't have uh, a, a global strong enforcement mechanism. So compliance really rests with states and national legislation is, is a very important lever to keep countries accountable um, to, to the commitments they put forward uh, under the, um, the Paris Agreement. And most of the litigation cases we're seeing are actually using national law rather than um, kind of international international level. And if uh, overall, I think what we, we have seen over time at Grantham since 1997 and the Kyoto Protocol was adopted, there were about 70 climate and climate-related laws around the world. Uh, right now, um, we we have over 2,400 uh, laws and policies addressing climate change. Uh, they're not created to be equal. And I think uh, when we talk about law playing a role, what, what we really need uh, to have is a strong pieces of framework legislation at the national level, which establish quantitative goals, which are in line with uh, the ones committed under the Paris Agreement and also have strong accountability mechanisms. And obviously I'll make a footnote to that. Um, law is only effective in the countries where rule of law generally is prevalent. And uh, of course, in other types of political systems, um, this would be less so. And oftentimes one talks about the example of China where while there is not a climate law, there is, um, there is an executive policy on climate which might actually be stronger than some of the climate laws um, in uh, kind of Western democracies. Um, but in general, I would, I would say that this is a critical lever to ensure compliance. Okay, any, any other questions? Uh, sorry, response to the question otherwise. I can bring in just one more final question. No? Okay, um, there was a last question that I wanted to bring in, which is uh, on the question of adaptation, something that concerns a lot of developing countries. This is from Kwek Xiao Tong, who is currently an MSc International Social and Public Policy student here at the LSE. And as we saw from the recent IPCC assessment report, uh, the global adaptation uh, process will require massive resources and those are unevenly distributed around the world. Do the panelists see any role for the great powers, given their economic might, to play a role here in helping developing countries adapt better to future climate change, not least given that it is almost unavoidable to cause havoc in many parts of the world? This will be the last question, so so brief responses uh, from panelists, please. Thank you. Barry. Well, very, very brief response. Look what happened with COVID. Would you, would you like to elaborate a bit? <laughs> well, I mean, there were some countries who had a lot of the resources to deal with adaptation and some who didn't. Um, and although there was some attempt at redistribution, it was not exactly what you would call massive. And if you look at the stats on who's been inoculated and who hasn't, um, they're pretty skewed. Um, so it was a bit better than nothing, but not much. 
And that seems to be the state of mind that international society is in, if I may be uncharacteristically gloomy. And just to uh, perhaps deepen the gloom, the COVID crisis was clearly one where we, we would have all benefited from a much more a global and rapid uh, distribution of vaccines. Uh, that's less the case, perhaps, for some forms of climate adaptation, though, of course, we're all in this together and we'll need to work together. Um, if anyone else wants to come in, I'll, uh, otherwise I'm going to close the panel. Stacy, you wanted to say something? I was just going to say that the, 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 the additional gloom there is that certainly in Glasgow, there was not much evidence that the um, uh, wealthier parts of the world were very interested in adaptation financing or commitments or even in language that suggested they might someday have to in order to take more responsibility. So they were, they were extremely policing of language that suggested they were going to have very much responsibility taking um, um, around adaptation and finance, financing. Okay. Well, unfortunately, we will finish on a gloomy note. Um, uh, but it is time for me to close the panel. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's been a great pleasure uh, to have the opportunity for both me and I think for all of you to listen to our panelists tonight. Uh, thank you very much for taking part and we're grateful you found time in your busy schedule to be with us today. Hope you've enjoyed this event and want to attend other similar events that the International Relations Department and the Grantham Research Institute are laying on in, in future weeks and months. And uh, I urge you again to have a look at the, the book that we've produced. It is available uh, to read online or to purchase. And, and hopefully we've stimulated some new ideas and new thinking that will help us solve those complex problems around climate change and global governance. Thank you on behalf of the LSE and good night. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.